You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, thank you that we're here. We ask that you'll bring more. And I ask that you'll just uh, speak through me, give me the right words to speak in just the right way, and a clear mind. We pray that uh, we'll all be edified and that we can, uh, that I can share and that there can be learning, uh, even myself, and uh, that the topic will be clear and, uh, and we'll, be, we'll be changed by these things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, the kind of the, the title for the whole series is, you know, the Israelites, uh, it only took them 40 years to, to reach Canaan, okay? The Adventists, why is it taking us now 177 years this year? Is it 177? 100, whatever it is, it's more than 175. I did the math today, but I forgot what it was. So uh, are our efforts to grow the church actually shrinking the church? That's kind of what we're looking at today. Um, lessons from the church, uh, you know, from our early Adventist history till today. The role of Adventist ministers and the role of church members has changed over the years. Some of, uh, you know, when you join a church or maybe you're new to a church, you don't know that much about the history, you'll think it's always been this way. And for many, many, many years, all denominations, ours included, have had one basic pattern for ministry. Pastors take care of churches. Done. Right? That's the norm. Okay? But that's not the biblical way. And it hasn't been good for the growth of the church. You know, if, uh, you know, we say as Adventists and, and kind of it's to our shame if you think about this. Bear with me. Uh, we, we claim that we are supposed to and are you know, doing everything we can to enlighten the world, the entire world, as fast as we can with the Free Angels' messages. But we want to be real sure that the pastors preach to us every week. They chair the board meeting, the school board meeting. Uh, they help us get rid of our squabbles. They deal with our gossip. You've got the picture. So we're not accomplishing the mission. Do, do I hear an amen? amen? Yeah. So we're going to talk about... Well, yesterday we went through the broad picture, the broad scope, uh, to, where, to where we understand what we should be doing and that we are not doing it and some things. But today I'm going to show you a little bit of the journey that it took from when we were doing things closer to right until where we are today. And then I'm going to show you uh, in, uh, uh, on graphs what this effect has been, and it's going to blow you away. It blew me away when I looked at it. So here we go. First of all, I want to talk to you about the early pioneers, something about their mindset, uh, their hardships, their, their difficulties, what they went through and what this message meant to them and what it meant to them to get it out as fast as they could and, and so forth. So we'll talk a little bit first about James and Ellen White and family. You know, our early pioneers, uh, they were married. They had kids. They were like anybody else. They weren't all, you know, bachelors or, you know, stuff like that. And uh, this 
uh, is, a, is, a, is something which James White said when he, he addressed, you know, he was speaking to the, at the general conference session in Battle Creek, and uh, it was printed in the Advent Sabbath, Review and Sabbath Herald, June 9, 1859. Okay? And he said, we have no settled pastors over our churches, but our ministers are all missionaries, as were the early ministers of Jesus Christ. Consequently, they are most of their time deprived of the blessings of home. For Christ's sake and for the salvation of their fellow men, they sacrificed the society of dear ones at home. They didn't see their family very much, their kids. In fact, James and Ellen White, for a five-year period, had to place their children in the care of somebody else because the both of them had to travel all the time. And yet they had kids. So they sacrificed the society of dear ones at home, go forth into a cold, selfish world, and wear out their lives in preaching unpopular Bible truth. He is speaking straight and truthful. God bless them. But they must be sustained. You see, at this point, the church was not yet really truly a denomination yet. It didn't have legal standing like we think of it now, you know, a corporate standing. They really didn't have a good way of sending tithe, taking in tithes and offerings and then sending it out where it needed to go. These folks were a lot like the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul didn't get a paycheck from Jerusalem, did he? Well, okay, this is the way they did, but they did it because they couldn't not do it. They couldn't not do it. God bless them, but they must be sustained. And God has made it the duty of the church to support them as they go on their mission of love. While a great work is before the church, the time that remains in which to accomplish it must be short. The last events of prophecy are being fulfilled, and the last warnings for the church are being given. Our ministers must be regarded as very economical in their expenses, They didn't have much to to expend. And abundant in their labors. In other words, they were supposed to do a lot of work for nothing. I mean, that reading between the lines, it's kind of like that. Kind of. Maybe not entirely that extreme, but you've got the idea. Most of them preach from two to three hundred discourses a year. Think about that. Two to three hundred discourses a year. And it is a painful fact that they often suffer hardships, care, and deprivation for want of means. Now, that was written in 1859. Let's see what happened in sequence after that in James and Ellen's life. 1860, their youngest son, Herbert, died at age three from erysipelas. Erisipolis. Henry, which Ellen White called her sweet singer, died at age 16 from pneumonia. James White had a stroke in 1865 at the age of 44, which put the both of them out of commission for 15 months following James's stroke. Neither one of them did any travel for 15 months, and they were at some health retreat 
and he, and he wasn't really getting better. How many of you knew this? A lot of you did. For some of you, this may have been new. Now, from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 570, this was Ellen White's response after 15 months stuck and what she decided she and James had to do. Now, are you beginning to get the idea that these, were, these folks were dedicated to the extreme? Okay? You hadn't seen anything. Having become fully satisfied that my husband would not recover from his protracted illness while remaining inactive, and that the time had fully come for me to go forth and bear my testimony to the people, I decided, contrary to the judgment and advice of the church at Battle Creek, of which we were members of that, uh, at that time, to venture a tour in northern Michigan with my husband in his extremely feeble condition in the severest cold of winter. It required no small courage of moral, no small degree of moral courage and faith in God to bring my mind to the decision to risk so much, especially as I stood alone with the influence of the church, including those at the head of the work at Battle Creek against me. She was of a set mind, do we understand? But I knew that I had a work to do. And it seemed to me that Satan was determined to keep me from it. I had waited long for our captivity to be turned and feared that precious souls would be lost if I remained longer from the work. To remain longer from the field seemed to be worse than death. And should we move out, we could but perish. So, on the 19th of December... <laughs> 1866, we left Battle Creek in a snowstorm for Wright, Ottawa County, Michigan. Now, mind you, they didn't get snow tires on the car and just have a tough time getting there. Ninety days, it could have taken them perhaps four or five days, you know, with a horse-drawn wagon. She doesn't say that exactly how they traveled, but this would have been typical. And it's freezing cold, and it's snowing, and, and, and James has been just feeble. But they went. <laughs> My husband stood the long and severe journey of 90 miles, much better than I feared, and seemed quite as well when we reached our old home at Brother Roots as when we left Battle Creek. Wow. Have any of you ever in your life in the church today seen anybody that dedicated like that? Now, let's see what Uriah Smith had to say. Now, that was written in 18, uh, what do we say, 1866, right? They, they left on, wait a minute. Uh, 1866, I think they, they tracked, uh, tracked out. Now, Uriah Smith, Science of the Times, Volume 1, Number 41. I give you all these details, so, you know, I didn't just get this out of anywhere. This was, I had to extract this stuff out of the archives from PDFs. That you could pull up the whole PDF from the archives or all this stuff. He says, this is exceedingly simple. A body of believers, talking about the formation of new churches, what the labor that they would do and then move on. He says, this is exceedingly simple. 
a body of believers associate together, taking the name of Seventh-day Adventist and attaching their names to a covenant simply to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The Bible is their only creed. A clerk is chosen to keep the records of the church, and an elder elected by vote of the church is obtained to look after its spiritual interests. If the church is large, its temporal affairs are assigned to one or more deacons chosen by vote of the church for this purpose. None of the churches have pastors established with them. They maintain their worship without the aid of a preacher, only as one may occasionally visiting them, leaving the ministers free to devote almost their whole time to carrying these views to those who have never heard them. And they did that only to go out and work with almost nothing to work, work themselves to the bone, maybe have strokes, whatever, go out in the middle of a snowstorm for four days when you're, when you're feeling so beat. You got the idea. We're fat, sassy, and lazy. And then, and then, only a few years after that, that was... 1874, and then James White died August 6, 1881, two days after his 60th birthday. In reading through Ellen White's writings, she was convinced that if he had slowed down a bit, he would have lived much longer. You know, I, I kind of I have OCD, and I've fallen apart several times because I didn't know when to stop. I can remember one year I had two job changes, three position changes, uh, bought a house and remodeled it while we lived in it, and ran for the state legislature all at the same time. And I just thought that was what I was supposed to do. I didn't know that's what idiots did. And then after I thankfully lost the election, I totally fell apart. And I was bad. I ended up in the hospital. And I was so bad, I was calling my own, I was such a bad OCD. I called my own doctor at his home 2 a.m. in the morning telling him when I wanted my test drawn. And he still put up with me after all that. So it's, it's obvious that James and Ellen White and the earlier pioneers were a little like that, but not as obnoxious. They were more Christian than I was, okay? And they had a better cause than I had. But there are people out there who are that way for all the wrong reasons. And there are very few out there for all the right reasons. In fact, there's hardly anyone out there, even though they're not OCD, for the right reasons. They're not. Just not there. And then, after that, after all of that, in 1914, this is about a year, a year and some odd months before Ellen White died, what was her response to that kind of lifestyle and watching all those early workers work like that, some of them work themselves to an early grave, what did she say? Our, this is March 5th, the 5th, uh, 1914, Review and Herald. Our ministers are not to spend their time laboring for those who have already accepted the truth. While with Christ's love burning in their hearts, they are to go forth to win sinners to the Savior. Beside all waters, they are to sow the seed of truth. Place after place is to be visited. 
Church after church is to be raised up. Those who take their stand for the truth are to be organized into churches. And then the minister is to pass on to other equally important fields. This is what it means and this is what it takes to take the three angels' messages to every place on this earth. And it is our duty, our God-given duty as Seventh-day Adventists to do that. God has given us the method, and when we use His method, we get the help of His Spirit. Because we can't, it's impossible for us to do this. We cannot do this job. It's physically, mentally, emotionally, financially impossible for you and me to do it. But if we will do what we can, doing it the way He says, we get all the abundant, overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit that makes it happen, that makes it go forward, that makes it just go ballistic. Now, you know, for years and years and years, you'll hear, well, we're developing this plan this year. You've heard this stuff before. And next year, oh, we're trying a new plan this year. It's going to work. Oh, yes, ad nauseum is true. And it goes on and on and on. What it is, it, it, to use a musical term, it's variations on a theme. Okay? But it's the wrong song. It's the wrong song. You know, how can you ask God to bless you when, when you know that you're not doing it the way he said to do it? That's called, what do they call that? Presumptuous? Yeah, that's a reasonable word for it. Now, many people have done this uh, ignorantly, and they have done the best they can, and God has honored that, and He has blessed them because they were they were sincere. Okay, there's many a minister, many a lay person, have been they've been ignorant of this. They just didn't know any better. They cannot be done as being. Uh, they cannot be down. You know, they cannot be cast away or or treated. Uh, absurdly, simply because they were ignorant. They haven't been willfully uh, disobeying. And God, you know, looks over our ignorance. The Bible teaches us that. But now he calls all to obey. So two weeks ago you had an excuse, but you don't have one now. <laughs> okay? That's my job. My job is to make you guilty. <laughs> Forgive me. Anyway. Now, what I want to do is I want to take you for a little journey. And based upon the study that I've done, some evidence from people that, that I've connected with, my father-in-law was a big help with this, and some other things which you will be, be able to identify, identify yourselves, we'll take a little journey from the days of the latter days of Ellen White, when, the, when even in her days while she was preaching this, they were starting to have, ministers were starting to stay too long with the church. You know, you get where you like your converts, but you forget you need to go like some more. You know, or whatever. And of course, the people in the pews, they just love this person that brought them to Jesus, but they love him so much that they don't love the neighbor who's never heard it enough. And, uh, and then, whatever the case, from that time, as it progressively went downward, and I will show you what I believe are steps along the way and how it took place. Based upon study, based upon observations in my lifetime, 
and uh, and stuff from like my father-in-law who started in the ministry in 1939. Before that, he was a radio actor. You even know what a radio actor is? <laughs> it's a soap opera on the radio, and they'd have live live. Uh, we're still good, I think. Okay. So number one, the ministers began to spend too much time with the churches. Okay. From evangel- Many of my quotations are not found in the books that were reprinted. A lot of them were dug out of the archives or you know, manuscript released, these types of things. If the ministers would get out of the way, if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities and their capabilities would increase by use. I want to tell you just a quick story. Um, in our church plant, even when I'm there, I don't preach every week. I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. But there's two younger men, and we, we take three. We even did this in a campaign before. Okay, You know, it was like the three musketeers. And I wouldn't preach. You know, I, I can preach a whole campaign. That's no problem. I've done it. And God has blessed me in those areas. But I'm not going to uh, do it when there's two other guys with me. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. These guys never went to school to be preachers. These guys never uh, studied homiletics, or that's a term for learning how to preach. Any of those things. One fellow never went to college at all, but they're good men. They're, they're a bit younger than I am. Uh, and, uh, and so, and I, I attended campaigns from the time I was a child. Church was everything to me. And I enjoyed going to campaigns. I even attended more than one campaign by Fordus Dedimore. Any of you knew who Fordus Dedimore was? There was no evangelist like him. No evangelist like him. I remember watching him in a campaign one night, and he was making a call, and the lights were down low, and we were singing verse after verse after verse after verse of these call songs, you know. He left the podium, went out into the audience, got down kind of next to him or on his knees, and pleaded with the man to give his heart. He wasn't standing up here asking him to come. He went down. There's, I could tell you all kinds of stories I learned from my father-in-law who worked with him three times. One night they were going to visit somebody. They were going to get there at 11. He thought he'd be asleep. My father-in-law says, or does he be asleep? He says, he'll wake up. Anyway, where are we going? Oh, yes, the three of us. So I, I listened to the best. Bandeman, all these folks, all these good names. Dedimore and uh, who else? Anyway, Dedimore and uh, Ben Singer, Ben Singer's son. And so one night I'm listening, and one of the guys, the, the other two, it was a particular topic. He preached the best evangelism sermon on that topic I had ever learned, li- listened to in my life from any living speaker. On a different night, the other guy did the same thing. The best campaign sermon I had heard in my life from any living speaker. And, and uh, the one fellow, the people really liked on Sabbath, they really liked him better than me. But anyway, retrospectively, and that's good. Retrospectively later, I realized that if I had chosen, because I had the experience to preach that campaign by myself, I would have stolen from the Holy Spirit the opportunity to develop talents in these young men. 
If the minister will get out of the way, the people will be obliged to bear responsibility, their talents will improve with use. God will even give them talents they don't even have right now. Why should he give you a talent if you're not going to be able to use it? Ellen White, General Conference Bulletin. This was at a General Conference session. And uh, this is from 1901. <clears throat> this, was, this may have been when she was in Australia. My heart has been filled with sadness as I've looked over the field and seen the barren places. What does this mean? Who are standing as representatives of Jesus Christ? Who feels the burden for the souls who cannot receive the truth till it is brought to them? Our ministers are hovering over the churches as though the angel of mercy was not making efforts to save souls. God holds these ministers responsible for the souls of those who are in darkness. Ouch. He ministers, the ministers are hovering over the churches. Okay, wait a minute. God, okay, he does not call you to go into fields that need no physician. Establish your churches with the understanding that they need not expect the minister to wait on upon them and to be continually feeding them. They have the truth. They know what the truth is. They should have root in themselves. They should strike down deeply that they may reach up higher and still higher. They must be rooted and grounded in the faith. You know, when you have a modern prophet in your church, you're going to get chewed on from time to time. And we need it. Step number two. There's six steps that I kind of identified myself. Some people could probably come up with 10 or 12, but I, I came up with six. The practice of assigning ministers to labor in the churches began as early in the 1890s. She was not happy. Her instructions against doing that were not followed. From the Review and Herald, 1895, June 11, the cities in America, in this country, now she was in Australia at this time, so she's talking about the cities in America and in this country, meaning and, as in, and in Australia, okay? are not being worked as they should be, and yet we are admonished to be laborers together with God. Instead of this, many churches collectively and individually have been so far removed from God, so separated from His Spirit, that they have left souls to perish all around them while they have been calling for workers to labor in the church. That goes on today. This labor has been granted them, and the impenitent and the sinner have been robbed of the messages which the Lord would have given to them. We know the truth. We have the truth. We know what it is. And then Galatians reminds us a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Once you start it, and you start assigning ministers to some churches, it won't be long until you have to do it with all of them. <clears throat> it's like you give one kid a piece of candy, you're going to have to give the other two or three. So this is kind of what took place. So step number three, ministers were assigned to all churches. It started, it, it, it gradually started, but it was going on, you know, <clears throat> in the uh, years after the century changed, 1900 up to about the 30s, it was developing, slowly developing. 
F.M. Wilcox, who was an editor for the Review and Herald in the June 4 issue of 1925, unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, unfortunately, there's a growing tendency in the denomination today towards settled pastorates. And the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, has to be taken up in settling church difficulties and in labor for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. We cannot feel that this is in God's order. That was almost 100 years ago. Uh, also from uh, G.A. Roberts and W.C. Moffat, these aren't names that you'll necessarily know, but this is an article by them in the Review and Herald, November 11, 1926, Page 8 <clears throat> says, There's a growing tendency to tie up ministers as settled pastors over churches. In every religious reform movement, this has been one of the first steps leading to stagnation and decadence. And talking about churches that, that, are fall, that, that aren't, aren't half of what they need to be, uh, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Somebody has a church with 200 members. Typical attendance is 100 warm bodies, of which half of them are non-baptized kids and the rest are visitors. Right? Or you have a... Two th In my conference, we have a church, maybe uh, a couple large churches, two, 3,000, but if you have more than a few hundred on a Sabbath, that's pretty good. If you had as many as five or six hundred regularly on a Sabbath, that'd be a big crowd. And nobody has a clue where they are. I remember going into a district and I visited every last soul on the conference books. Some people hadn't had visits in years. People that you'd think you'd never be able to contact, and this was before you could just go and Google everybody. I found them. I found them. Yeah. You can do it. And you don't reclaim everybody, but at least you showed God you tried and you cared. And the trouble is, is it's left up to the ministers to do all that, and it takes them two or three years just to figure out what's going on with the rest of you folks. <laughs> right? They move in, they don't know the lay of the land yet. But if the church members were responsible for themselves and the church elders were responsible for the church, a lot less of this would go on because when you win those souls yourself, you're going to look after them and you're not going to forget all about them until 10 years later and, oh, where'd they, where'd they go? You see how it works better? Yeah. Whether you have a settled minister or not, you need to get acquainted with all these people that that man or woman baptizes. You need to befriend them, and you need to point yourself as their guardian. And then teach them to do that with others that they win. Very important. So anyway, moving on. Uh, from J.L. McElhaney. Now that is a church name that some of you may recognize. This is the Ministry Magazine. That's the, the magazine that goes out to all, all preachers from January 1931. Now we're coming up on 1932. That's an important year, and I'm going to explain. 
Shall we go on year after year simply pastoring our churches and engaging in spasmodic missionary endeavor? You know, every October when the Adventist kings go to war. You didn't hear that, did you? And expect to see this work finished? The insistent cry from our churches is for pastoral help. And one of the chief problems faced by conference administrators today is that of providing settled pastors for our churches. Every executive committee meeting, you know, that, that can be a concern. Okay? Yet this is quite contrary to the plain instruction which has come to us from the spirit of prophecy. But can you see that as we followed that language up to where he's taught, saying this in 1931, can you see that, that the idea of settled pastors was entrenched? It was entrenched. Okay. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about 1932. 1932 is a very important year in Adventism. Up to 1932, there was no official church manual. Now, there was a book by, I think it was Loughborough, that was used as a manual, but it really wasn't a voted-in uh, church manual like we think of it today. And they used it, but then finally they, you know, came together corporately, general conference, so forth, and, they, and a manual was written. And in that particular manual was the first time that you had from, from that type of source, from the, you know, the, 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 you know, the representatives of the world church, where you had the description of the minister's duties. And it's what you see today. That was the first time that you have a church manual sanctioning settled pastors. We, you know, we really stand in trouble, don't we? Now, I want to show you what happened, though, uh, here in a moment. And then, then I'm going to tell you about Hubert T. Anderson. Now, that's not a big name in Adventism. That's my father-in-law, okay? Although he was well-known in his day. He was a great, great proponent of justification by faith. That was like his favorite topic. He did, he did a seminar or two on that. He worked in... Uh, Conferences everywhere. My wife has actually lived in 22 states. And the majority of that was before we ever got married. And we've been married 47 years. And, uh, and we've, we've only moved about 13 times. We've lived in a few states. So most all of that was, the greatest percentage was while she was a pastor's daughter. And not only did she live in 22 states, sometimes she lived in as many as two or three places in one state. Or more than one time in a state as it get called back there. Or they, in one place, they lived in three houses in one city. Because when you go and you move, sometimes you can't find any place to rent but something that's kind of not so good. He was an old-fashioned pastor. When he got a call, he considered it from the Lord and he went. Others in talking about him, they called him the gypsy pastor. But, and he was the one that worked with Fortis Dedimore and, and all these other things. And he knew how to do evangelism. He taught me stuff. And, uh, and so anyway, that's the way he was. He taught me all those important things. And uh, I learned so much from this man. But when he started ministry, he was a radio actor first, then he became converted to, to be a Seventh-day Adventist. 
Then he went to the ministry, into the ministry in 1939. Now, when he went into the ministry in those days, you had to hold an evangelism campaign your first year and get at least one baptism or you were out of the ministry, period. Forget it. You just, you just lost proving that you had to call. But I had a friend in college. I went to Southern, you know, in the early 70s, okay? I went, I, I had a friend from college who was a pastor, ran into him many years later. He had been in the ministry 20 years and had never in his life had one campaign that he ever preached. Not one in 20 years. But the conference loved him because the churches loved him and he could stay in a district a long time and they didn't have to move him much. I'm being honest with you. He could stay for years in a place. And now, the name of the game is you don't want to be somebody that has to be moved very often. You want to make sure that the church puts up with you long because if you get to be moving a lot, it's kind of expensive. This is reality in a lot of places in God's church. It's slowly changing. They're kind of waking up a little bit, but not enough. We have gone from good to very bad. You see? And so I learned all of this put together. I'm glad that I married the woman I married for many reasons. One of them, of course, happens to be her father. (laughs) But but no, I have a wonderful wife. Uh, She's put up with me for almost 50 years. So anyway... Step number four, and this goes back to like 70s or 80s that I know of. Some churches began to request that pastoral candidates being considered possess specific traits that they were good for their church. You know, Mr. Mr. Conference President, we want a pastor that has these qualities. Okay. You know, and, and the conference presidents aren't likely to say, Mr. President, we want somebody who will go to the town over the next town and start a church, and we want to help him do that. They, they're not going to hear that too often. Can you see how that is one more step down into absolute pastoral dependency? Can you see that? Can you see how we went from, you know, kind of a little bad to a little worse to, to really truly kind of bad to, to bad? to ridiculous. You guys are chuckling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I won't ask you for how many of you have ever done that. I'm, I'm going to be nice. <laughs> and then it got worse than that. It got worse than that. Ministers began to be interviewed by prospective churches. They'd line up two or three people and let them interview. Then they'd vote on it. You know. (laughs) My father-in-law, one time they wanted to interview him. He he was mad enough to spit bullets. He just, he thought that was ridiculous. This was later in his ministry. And he pastored big churches. He pastored big churches. And, uh, <laughs> but it got that bad. It got that bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yes, thank you. Yeah, that, uh, uh, in, case, in case the tape didn't catch that, the gentleman up here correctly stated that that's standard operating procedure now. Yeah. Now, if a church were to say, you know, Mr. President, help us because we'd, we'd like to have somebody who's, who's been successful in planting churches in a, in a Baptist area because everyone around us is Baptists. And, uh, you know, we, we have a few folks that we know of that have done that, that maybe they're not open to a call, but boy, we'd like to have somebody that can tackle this tough area or somebody that's in a Muslim area or somebody that's in a Catholic area. At least that would have some kind of semblance of brain activity. <laughs> okay. What the conference should hear from you is this. You know, Mr. Conference President, we're messed up, but we know it, and we need to just deal, get our own act together. Okay, and we don't want you to waste money taking somebody that's got a master's in divinity degree and spend all that education on us. We already know the truth. We're just acting stupid, that's all. But why don't you take the money, our tithe, and use it to pay that man to go over to this town over here and start a new church, and we'll even send in extra offerings and tithe just to make it happen. The guy might have a heart attack. He, 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 may, he, may, he may wonder if he's having a dream. But wouldn't that be the Christ-like response? Something, something like that. And better yet, since that town over there isn't 100 miles away, it's only 60 or 70, some of our members live within 10 or 20 miles, and we're just going to help them to understand that maybe they ought to help him. You see... And isn't this more exciting than sitting there squabbling with everybody and wanting the pastor to straighten you out? Yeah, I like that amen I heard. You can say that as loud as you want. Now, it gets worse. <clears throat> it gets worse. And I'm going to throw up some terminology some, some of you might not necessarily uh, be familiar with. But can you see that Adventist churches are beginning to use the conference as an employment agency? Isn't this the way the corporate world works? They hire another agency to do the headhunter thing, to take care of this company. Now, I just said some hard words, but you proved me wrong. Prove me wrong. You can't do it. So this is where we're going now. This is actually happening in some areas. We have a professional ministry which is trending in the direction of congregationalism in, is developing in some areas. Do any of you know the term congregationalism? It's where the church hires its own pastor. It, that's the next natural step, and it's kind of almost getting that way. Kind of, not entirely. Uh, we, our denomination won't fully allow that. However... I have a friend, a younger man than me, where when he became a pastor, he was hired by the local church as the associate pastor and they paid his salary. But he was a full conference pa pastor, but that conference footed his salary to, to the conference. But basically, they hired him. 
And so that is a, a modified type of congregationalism as I see it. He's a wonderful man. Don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with him. He later became uh, the, uh, chap- uh, the, the chaplain for one of the state senates or state house of representatives in a state out west. Very good man. Okay? It could be that the Lord got him into ministry by hook or by crook. But the method of how he got in wasn't God's chosen method. God just worked with us in our messed up condition. So we cannot fault the pastors because they work in a messed up situation that they have no choice to work with. We cannot fault each other. We cannot fault members for their misbehavior. They're sinners, okay? They're squabbling. They're like you and me. They're normal. They're messed up. They're sinners. We've been attacked by the devil. And we need to rely upon Jesus' righteousness to cover us. But now that we are knowing better what is expected of us, God expects us to reach forward with His help and His blessings and His blood and empower us to do it the right way where He can pour forth manifold blessings. Now, let's get back to the year 32, 1932. Up until 1932, we hadn't officially sanctioned <coughs> things. But I'm going to show you what happened in North America's growth rates uh, from the year 1863 when we officially became a denomination until the year 1932. And, then, and I'm using only North America, okay? Because once you start getting into other nations, you can't compare you know, methods of ministry very easily. I wanted to use something which would be stable, which would have a sta- stable data set, if, if you know what I'm talking about. And then comparing what happened from 1932 to 2017, which was the records I had available to me when I pulled this together. So you will see that <clears throat> I, I got these things from the, uh, you know, the Adventist statistical reports from 2018, which gives you 2017 data, and from uh, the general conference statistics from uh, years of 1863 to 1900. Why did I choose 1900? Because I could separate out the North American division by itself from 1900 until now. Because, you know, you have to separate it there. Because after 1900, we started sending missionaries, so I had to separate it. But before 1900, the only membership of any count was in the United States. So that's why that's up there. So I want you to understand my methodology so that you understand that, you know, this is all how you have to do some demographic studies. You know, I had to take in some variables here, and I had to weed out variables that did not apply. So this is how this, uh, this information was tabulated. So now, during the first 69 years of the official Adventist church from when we officially became a denomination, until 1932, in North America, the number of churches grew by 18.3 times. In 1863, we had 125 churches, and in 1932, we had uh, 2,285, I think 85. So in other words, that's more than 18 times, a multiple of 18 times in growth, okay, in 69 years. Well, the next period from eight, um, 
1932 to 2017 is more years, right? It was 85 years. In the next 85 years, the number of churches in North America grew by 2.4 times. in more years with more resources and more time and more people. 2.4 times. Ouch. Ouch. Don't like that, do we? Well, what happened with the membership? Okay. When we look at uh, the membership in North America, the number of members, uh, in in 1863, there was about 3,500 approximately, okay? And then in 1932, uh, there was 135,837, more than 130,000. That's a growth of 38.8 times, almost 40 times growth rate in uh, 69 years, okay? If we had obeyed, it would have, it would have gone off, off the charts. But it did that well even with disobedience. It just wasn't as openly defiant disobedient. I, I shouldn't use those terms because that, that casts judgment. But anyway, we got worse in our obedience after that. Uh, but now let's look what happened during the next 85 years. You already know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> In the next 85 years, instead of 38.8 times, from 1932 to 2017, it grew by 9.2 times. It went from 135,837 to 1,249,715. You see the dramatic difference in the growth rates from then until now. And yet, between then until now, from 32 until now, we've tried every program there is to try to win more souls. Annually, every conference, there's, there's a new plan. But there's not the right plan. God doesn't have 150,000 plans. He has one plan. He's given it to us. He just asks us to obey. And, uh, and I want to show you, st- oh, let me just see something here a minute. I want to show you something uh, that is kind of striking. Now, you, uh, maybe you can see this graph. I don't know if you can. And I'm not going to tell you which... Con- I did a screenshot on that, so it's kind of small. But uh, the, 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 the top to bottom rows represent 10 years, from 2009 to 2019. This is the kind of... St- the kind of things you can pull up on adventiststatistics.org. And I won't tell you what conference this is. Uh, you know, it's not your conference here. It's not the Michigan conference. It's another conference. But uh, what you have here is across the top. That's uh, There's more data up across the top, but I left that out partly because it would reveal the conference name if I went up too far or too low. But I wanted to make the important part bigger. Okay? And then across, going across, you find death rate, accession rate. Accession rate means the number of baptisms and professions of faith, okay? And how many people were dropped, your memberships, and all like that. 
Look here across the bottom too, the number of ordained ministers and the number of licensed ministers. If you look at the numbers, the first year you have 40 and 7, that's 47. The next one is 35 and 8, that's 42. Then you have a total of 48. Then you have a total of 50. Then you have a total of 48. But then next one you end up with 60... What is that? 61. That's a big jump from 40s and 50s to 61. Okay, you see that. Uh, and some of you, hopefully you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. But if you look at the uh, accession rate, during the years when there's fewer ministers, you have 3 3.03%, 2.11%, 2.77%, 2.12%, 1.92%, 1.77%. 1 the next year, after you have this big increase in the number of ministers, the accession rate plummets. You end up with 1.2%, 1.38%, so forth. Likewise, the growth rates. You end up with growth rates from about 1.6789 and through there down to like 0.68. When you have, and, and there wasn't like a rise in number of churches. The, the number of churches across those 10 years was very much the same. There really wasn't any church planting. When you have a specific set number of churches, and you increased and you increased the number of ministers uh, by any substantial amount, the growth rate will drop, and it will stay down, and it may not ever recover unless you just lose all your ministers, and then the people start to do more for themselves, and then the growth rate goes up. This is not an isolated instance. This is not an isolated thing. Uh, in, on a different night, on a different excuse me, a different afternoon. I'll show you what happened when I went to Mongolia and the stats I saw there. I went over there with a medical and dental uh, outreach and then later to give this particular seminar. But before I went over, even the first time, I looked at the statistics. I always look at the statistics. When I do, I can tell a lot about what to expect, what's going on. So I saw this one year where they had a 50% rise in the number of ministers. The next year they had a 50% decrease in their growth rate. So I talked to the secretary, general secretary, about it. I says, what about this? He says, yeah, he says, more ministers are bad for the church. That's, that's what he said. That's what he said. So, so, you know, we talked about the change in the church member's role, how it was changed over the years from the days of Ellen White and about the ministers. We talked mostly about the ministers, but as the minister's role changed, part of it is because of the church members' demands. And as this takes place, then as, as the ministers take on more, the members are not stupid, they just do less. If you got somebody paid to do your work, are you going to do it? And so really what we have is an overworked ministry, extremely overworked ministry, but they're not overworked with the same kind of work that Ellen and James were getting a stroke at 60, you know, 44 years old. They're overworking for wonderful, beautiful, lovely church members who don't know that they're, that they're frustrating their ministers who really want to win souls and they're stuck. This is how the roles have changed. 
But there's great joy that comes with obedience. For the church members, for the ministers, for the angels of heaven, for God the Father, God the Son, and Christ Himself. Because we, as we begin to take on God's roles as He has given to us in Scripture, in the writings of Ellen White, we ourselves will develop talents we didn't know we have because we haven't had them until God gives them and He's not going to give them until we need them. One more quick story. In a church plant that we that we worked in Pennsylvania, I I was a nurse. Okay, I've been a salaried pastor too, but I was a misfit. Okay, <laughs> I just wanted to plant churches and evangelize, and there was no budget for either. But anyway, we had five Adventists and two who hadn't been baptized yet. Robbie and his wife hadn't been baptized yet. My wife and I. Robbie and his wife, they weren't baptized yet, and three church members. One of them had been my deacon in one of the churches I was pastoring. And uh, so we got this church. Uh, we didn't have a church. We prayed. We got a, uh, didn't have a building. But one of the guys knew a, uh, oh, I'm getting 315. I'm going to have to hold this story till later. It's time to leave. I didn't mean to hold you in suspense, but I really must. Okay, I'll fudge for a couple minutes. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole story, but I will tell you this, that Robbie, he was a prison guard, he didn't read very well, and he was Italian. The town was Italian and Polish combination. And he was Catholic, okay? Remember that he's Italian Catholic, okay? And so he becomes a member. And, you know, I let the others preach, and... The others wanted Robbie to preach. I wasn't too sure about Robbie. I should have been. But I says, okay. Anyway, so he gets up. It's his first sermon coming. He's nervous. He called my phone so many times. Wes, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? He kept on about drumming. He just rung my phone off the hook. See, making sure everything is all right. And he's planned. He's got it all written down, what he's going to say. And so it comes to his first sermon. And he walks up to the pulpit just like he's the pastor, you know. And he invited all of his Catholic relatives, and all of them came. They were Catholic, but their boy was preaching. They're going to hear him. So his sermon was, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight minutes or ten or something. It was very, he comes down. How to do it? Did okay, Rob. So he preached again and again. So one day at Potluck, we have a Lutheran lady sitting right across from my wife, okay? The potluck. Earlier that day, Robbie had preached. As he comes down from the pulpit, I'm waiting at the door for him. Wes, i got to tell you, I did something. I, I don't know if I did right or not. He said, uh, I got to a certain point here, and I felt like I should say this. He said, okay. I says, yeah, Rob, sometimes the Holy Spirit works that way. And at the potluck, a Lutheran lady, she said, when... When Robbie said this, it was as if it was meant just for me. Now you have to understand that Robbie and his aunt were one day talking about the scribes and the you know the Pharisees. Bear in mind he's never read the Bible much before and he's Italian. And they were talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> so if God can take 
an, an undereducated man who doesn't read well, who calls the Sadducees a, the Sadducees, and can use him and have the Holy Spirit change his message on the fly, who am I to argue? Can you see that any of you can be used in the pulpit if you're willing and if God so wills? Don't say, I can't. When a minister asks you to do something, don't say, I can't. Say, by the grace of God, I'm going to give it my best shot. And God can use you to preach the best evangelism sermon on a specific topic that anyone has ever heard from any living speaker. He can use you to touch the hearts of people and change your message on the fly, even though you say words funny. I think by that time he'd learned that they were the Sadducees, but can you see this? Now, since you can see it, you have no excuse. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. You've blessed me. You've blessed us today. Lord, may we be faithful to follow you, to follow your instructions, and hasten the return of Jesus. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.